Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. We have a special episode to share with you. Today, we are releasing an episode created by one of our Fall 2024 Gen Z Fellows who went through the Democracy Group Podcast Fellowship. If you'd like to hear more of their podcast, search the name in your podcast app or follow the links in the episode description. Our next fellowship applications open January 16th at the democracygroup.org slash fellowship. If you know any college or high school students who are passionate about democracy and have been thinking about launching a podcast, have them head over to democracygroup.org slash fellowship and turn in an application. Again, that's democracygroup.org slash fellowship. Okay, let's get to the episode. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Sean Schrader. I want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of A Scoop of Inspiration, where we have meaningful conversations on our most pressing challenges delivered in a pint-sized format. In each episode, we will focus on a topic of interest and concern that's being felt in so many places around the country here in the United States and throughout the world. Today, we're going to be focusing on the topic of civility, specifically what civil discourse looks like, why it's become non-existent in many areas, and most importantly, steps you can be taking in your own community to promote conversations with differing viewpoints. In every episode, we're also going to have the opportunity to learn more about our understanding of our guests and some of the outstanding work that they're doing, along with learning about their favorite ice cream, which we can never pass up. In our inaugural episode today, I'm honored that my friend and former U.S. Congressman Rick Keller has agreed to join us. I was fortunate to meet Rick when we shared the stage at the University of South Florida in Sarasota for their TEDx speaking event back in 2022, and we've kept in touch ever since. Just to give you a very brief overview of Rick's experience, he is an American politician, author, and lawyer who served as the U.S. Representative for Florida's 8th Congressional District from 2001 to 2009. His district included much of the Central Florida region, including the greater Orlando metropolitan area and Walt Disney World. He also chaired the House Higher Education Subcommittee and served on the Judiciary and Education Committees. Today, he is an author, speaker, TV commentator, and attorney. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be with you, Sean. Thank you for having me on this episode. So to start, can you give our listeners a little background in your life? You know, I got to hear your story, and it's so inspiring of how you got to Congress uh, and and what's really motivated you to stay in public service. Yeah, how I got into Congress really also motivated, ultimately, my, my passion for civility. And essentially what happened when I was 17, I didn't have enough money to go to college. And my mom was a single parent raising three kids on the modest salary of a secretary. And she had a clever idea. She said, why don't you ask my boss, who's the CEO of a company, if his company would consider making a charitable contribution to send me to college? And so I met with him and I was 17 and Mr. Overstreet was 81 and my hands were shaking and I was nervous. And I said, Mr. Overstreet, I want to go to college so bad. And I want your company to make a charitable contribution to help me. And if you do, I, I promise you I'll graduate top of my class. It won't be a waste of money. And he said, I'm just the, the CEO, son. I, I've got a board of directors to answer to and they're meeting on Tuesday. So come back Tuesday afternoon. I'll let you know the answer. And I came back and I was nervous. And he said, well, the board met and they decided that they would not help you go to college. 
And it's nothing personal, but they felt if they did that for you, they would do it for everyone. And I thanked him for at least trying and tears just uncontrollably started coming down my face. And he said, uh, son, you can wipe the tears away. I said, the company couldn't help me put through college. I didn't say that I couldn't. And so with that, he, he stroked a check and I was off to uh, college. And four years later, I was able to be on the stage and graduate first in my class. And that got me to Vanderbilt Law School. And afterwards, I had a mission. And my mission in life is I wanted to go to Congress to increase college aid called Pell Grants to help other people uh, go to college. And so I was lucky enough to get elected and became chairman of the Higher Education Committee. And civility became the number one issue for me because the Pell Grant program uh, was started by a Democrat senator. It's considered by most people to be a Democrat program. And here I am, a Republican in a Republican Congress. And so to get this through, and, and we ultimately did increase Pell Grants by 62 percent, I would have to work with my Republican colleagues uh, to convince them to vote for what many perceived to be uh, many two billions of dollars. And I'd have to vote. Uh, and, and get along with my Democrat colleagues, too. And so what I learned from my experience is that I can't be upset when someone on the other side of the aisle votes against my tax cut, because the next week that person is going to be my champion on Pell Grants and that it behooves you not only for reasons of being nice, but it behooves you uh, in terms of your success to be civil with people and, and listen and, and act respectfully despite agreement. And so it was something that I had to do but it made me passionate about it because I saw the, the good results that it brings. And you know, that is really so inspiring. I mean, thinking about your story, uh, how you had that clear vision and the objectives uh, and how you've been able to achieve that uh, is really, really exciting. And that's a perfect sort of segue into our topic today of civility. So let's talk about it. Uh, it is no surprise to any of our listeners uh, that when you get on social media, watch any kind of cable news program, or you just have conversations uh, in real life from person to person, there's usually a lot of yelling going on when you're discussing uh, major challenges uh, that our country is facing, whether they be domestic or international issues. Uh, there's really, I don't think, a lot of consensus building. So could you really, you know, kind of give our listeners a sense of why that may be the case? Why is there that lack of civility? Well, it's the number one question I get from people. Aren't, aren't you glad that you're not in Congress now during these crazy times? And it is a little bit different tone now than when I was there. And in terms of who's to blame, there was recently a civility survey that said 90% of Americans think the erosion of civility in public life is a problem. And seven out of 10 blame divisive politicians. Another seven out of 10 put the, put the blame on social media trolls. And, and six out of 10 put it on the screaming talking heads. And so I think what's happened with the uh, advent of social media and the 24-hour news cycle is that the people who say the wackiest stuff, either on the left or the right, are the ones most likely to get on MSNBC or Fox News. And you have people who are from these districts that 90% of incumbents are reelected, where the only way they can lose is in a primary. And so what you see is people saying, wow, if I pander to the base and talk about how worthless my opponent is, I can get reelected and I can be famous and go on TV. And the incentives are a little bit in the wrong place. Now, the catch is all those people that you see on TV who are yelling and screaming and telling how the other side worthless 
are not successful legislators. Most of them have not passed a single bill and, and won't because it takes a little bit more polish and respect and courtesy to get that done. But the structure of the gerrymandered districts combined with social media and 24-hour uh, cable TV has, has led to a lot of uh, divisive politics. And you're right, that is a significant challenge. Uh, I will admit, I think along with many others, it's easy to spend a lot of time, you know, living on a cell phone, living on social media to stay abreast of the news. And again, like you said, then you're in that cycle of just always checking what's going on and seeing what the latest news information is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so thinking about that, thinking about how we have come to this issue, before our interview today, I was really fortunate to read one of your many uh, insightful pieces. This one um, from Smirconish.com, focusing on rules for practicing civil discourse. And one of your rules focused on listening with an open mind to those with differing views. So often today, though, there really seems to be almost this concept that there are differing sets of facts, not opinions, but facts. And if your facts are different from someone else's, they just kind of turn off whatever you have to say, uh, and they're not really willing to listen. How do you break through uh, to those maybe that just really have the blinders on, think their facts are correct, uh, and whatever you are saying that maybe is in disagreement with that uh, is just not reputable? Well, I think so many people who have problems in this area are listening for flaws uh, that they can exploit and beat their argument, or they're worried that it's going to be a different opinion than them. So there's some cognitive dissonance going on, or they're frankly just thinking about what they're going to say next. And the solution, as you mentioned, is to listen um, with an open mind to, to other people. And I'll give you a, a couple examples. Uh, when you and I did our TEDx talks, um, one of the first things they did was assign me a 20-year-old mentor uh, named Evelyn, who was supposed to teach me and be my guide at how to do public speaking. And I went to college on a public speaking scholarship. It was my major. I was a U.S. congressman for many years, a trial lawyer for 31 years, and I've given a thousand keynote speeches, and I'm a professional speaker. And so when I went down there, what I said to myself in the car ride a hundred times out loud was, keep an open mind, keep an open mind, keep an open mind. I wanted my vibes to be positive and I wanted my thoughts to be positive. And so I met with Evelyn and as you know, it took us about six weeks of working together. And at the end of the day, she had nine specific suggestions, changes she wanted me to make. And I accepted all nine and it was the best speech I've ever given. And it wouldn't have happened if I went down there as Mr. Know-it-all and there's nothing you can teach me because I know everything. It went down there because I was willing to be open and listen to what other people had to say. And that's really cool. Uh, and I think it's one of those things where you can always, like you said, have an open mind. Uh, you broaden your own perspective and you learn something in the process and hopefully make a new friend too. And that's that's really special. Yeah, absolutely. And so, one of the big, one of the big challenges, just to give one other quick example, is we have a, an orientation every year for people elected and they go to Congress and, and uh, up at Seth at Harvard. And so many Republicans don't go because they think that the Harvard people are too left-leaning. and So many Democrats don't go because they said there's too many CEOs and not labor leaders. And it just misses the mark because it wouldn't hurt a Democrat to listen to what a right-leaning CEO has to say about how to create jobs in the private sector. It wouldn't kill a Republican to listen to what a left-leaning Harvard professor has to say 
about how to increase access to college for poor kids. It, it's, it's a big part of your job to keep your mind open. Exactly. Yes, that is really important. And, and that's a great segue into our, our next question here. And really, this idea of thinking about working across the aisle. I mean, you were in Congress uh, during some really important moments in history. I think some of the issues probably that were being debated then are still issues that are being debated right now. Uh, but what was really unique and something I admire greatly at your time uh, in public office is being able to work across the aisle to really help deliver on some major issues and really help those you know that need help in the process. Was wondering if you could kind of give our listeners some insight into your mindset, into how you approach civil discourse with lawmakers. Maybe you did not agree on on every issue with and maybe how you were able to maintain some friendships with those across the aisle too. I think the number one thing I learned and used in practice is to act respectfully despite disagreement. You don't have to agree on everything. You don't have to meet in the middle. Um, you don't have to agree on anything, but you do need to listen respectfully and don't question the other person's motives or roll your eyes or constantly interrupt them or use adjectives to make them feel worthless. People just want to be seen and to be heard. And if you take the position, listen, I'm going to listen with open mind. I'm going to hear what you have to say genuinely. I want you to listen to me. Um, and we reach agreement on seven things and we don't on three things. You're still my buddy. You're still someone worthy of respect. And I know that that long term, I'm going to need you and you're going to need me. And so my theory wasn't, oh, I have to be Mr. Compromise or meet in the middle, although I often did that. I, I think 90% of a loaf of a bread is better than none. Um, what made me uh, have my views is just the importance of treating people respectfully. And when someone is a jerk to you and you are warm-hearted in response, it breaks that cycle of back and forth uh, vitriol. In that's a really important way to look at it. Like you said, when you think about, again, the fact that at the end of the day, there's so much more in common than there is, um, you know, apart. And again, thinking about these issues and trying to build consensus, because at the end of the day, uh, it, it is people's lives at stake. It is the future of, of the United States. Yeah, I, I think the best example that I've ever seen in public life is... Um, when Trump was president his first year, September 2017, and there was the mother of all rallies while all these Trump supporters got together in Washington. And the leader of the Black Lives Matter from New York came down. His name was Hank Newsom. And he said, I was ready to fight because you just had the, the racial wars and incident in, in Virginia and you had tensions were high. And the head of the rally, a, a hardcore Trump supporter, sees him in the audience and rings him up on stage. And he said, uh, I see you. Uh, we may not agree with you, but I think you have a right to be heard. And so I'm going to give you two minutes of my time to say whatever you want. And Hank took the microphone and he was so warm and gracious. He was shocked. He said, listen, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I believe that all lives matter, just that, just like you do. But I, we say black lives matter because sometimes when there's a George Floyd incident, there's there's not justice. And so all lives matter. Yes. And he said, if you want to make America great, how about we do it together? And the whole crowd cheered and there was affection. And that was just a perfect example. They didn't have to agree on everything, but the fact that they were civil and respectful changed the whole tone of the entire rally. 
That's really cool. That is very inspiring because you're right. At the end of the day, uh, there is so much more in common than there is apart. And I think that's a really big driving piece of this and something that um, is is important, especially in our most contentious issues. That's that's really cool. And, and going off of that, it, it's interesting to see how much things have evolved over time uh, and the role of technology and social media uh, in our lives today. I meet so many people, not just young people, uh, but older folks as well, who say that their main source of news is not TV, uh, it is not podcasts. It's none of that information. It is social media. They read things on on X or they read things on Facebook or Instagram. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic. Part of it is you're able to then usually get information very concisely, very quickly. But the back end of it then means that sometimes there is that narrative put on it. Uh, and then there's also that, I think, discussion piece that you have with those in a virtual setting, a virtual profile. Uh, And there is a lot of anger and hate on social media today. Uh, If you have an opinion, you have a comment, if people don't like it, they will let you know and and they will not hold back. How do you practice civility in that virtual realm uh, where, again, it seems like for so many, uh, nothing is off the table in terms of how they respond uh, and how much they disagree with you. Well, you mentioned the uh, the cable news. I, I think if you're watching more than half an hour a day of cable news at night, you're it's a, it's a recipe uh, for sadness and disaster. Because I know everything Sean Hannity's going to say before he says it. I know everything uh, Rachel Maddow is going to show say before he says it. I, I shouldn't know that. You know, they're just advocating a point of view. It's not news. It, it's opinion. With respect to social media, yeah, there's there's so much vitriol. I all I can tell you is this: if someone were to make a really offensive comment to me on Facebook that um, I'm a tough guy, I can absorb it, but it was personal and attack, I I defend them. Uh, same thing on every other thing. I I don't need it. Uh, what I what I don't do is respond in like kind. So, for example, let's say someone read my book. And they said, I read your book and you're a fraud and I hate you. It's the worst book I've ever seen. And here's my 15 page analysis as to why it sucks. I could say, well, you know, you suck. You're wrong on these three things. I could ignore them. But what I would probably rather do is wait a little bit. And then I would respond and I would say, I just want to say one thing. Thank you so much for taking the time to read it. Thank you so much for taking the time to give me your opinion. And I guarantee you it would change the dialogue. It would take them in 30 seconds from being the world's biggest enemy to someone who feels respected and and kind and would treat you nicely. That, I think, is a perfect example of of what it means, I think, to disarm someone maybe that's headed into the conversation, like you said, very angry, ready to prove a point, ready to fight. And just in a matter of a few sentences, literally, to change the entire outcome of the conversation, make them seen uh, and, and make them valued and heard. Uh, and, and that's really cool. And that is very impressive um, to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we we see people who don't really appreciate kindness is we know if you give a kidney, you know, that's a big deal. We, we know if you give $25 million to the university, it's a big deal. But little micro uh, acts of kindness are a huge deal, too. 
Like, for example, Sean, let's say that you're at the line at Publix and a lady in front of you, the credit card doesn't work and it's humiliating and there's another card doesn't work. We've seen that happen so many times and you could tell by the clothes and everything, they don't have a lot of money. If you were just quietly to drop a $20 bill by her side and pick it up and say, excuse me, ma'am, but I see that you dropped this. That's 20 bucks out of your life. That's 30 seconds out of your life. She'll be thinking about that and talking about it for 20 years. Little tiny acts of kindness um, make the person feel better. It makes you feel better. And more importantly, it has a ripple effect. Like Mr. Overstreet was a multimillionaire. By giving me a few thousand dollars, the ripple effect was I increased Pell Grants. So an additional five and a half million people got to go to college. One person with a little act of kindness impacted five and a half million people. And I think if we knew how important little acts of kindness are, whether it's the right word to someone who's down or the right action to put a car off the street or some honorable thing to make them feel seen and heard, if we knew how powerful it was, I think we'd do it a lot more. And that's so inspiring. And it really leads, I think, into the final segue here of our podcast, really bringing this back down to local action, steps that our listeners can be taking in their own community. They are aware uh, that civil discourse is not really that practiced like it should be today. They would like to make a change. What would you suggest to those that are passionate, they're involved in their community, they would like to make a change, not only how they can practice civil discourse in their own life, but maybe help inspire their friends, their classmates, their roommates, their colleagues, to do the same thing? There are three specific actionable tips I would give people. Number one is listening with an open mind. And by that, when someone tells you how they feel about something, regardless of how controversial it is or offensive, the appropriate attitude is curiosity. Oh, really? Tell me more about that, Sean. Tell me how you came to feel that way. And what you'll get to eventually are the values behind what your opinion are. And you're going to see a lot of common agreement on values when you get there. And people just want to be seen and heard. So instead of listening um, as, as if you're looking for a flaw, listen as if you're wrong. Listen with curiosity. Truly get to the bottom of of what their feelings are, because there's no obligation for you to agree on it, but you're going to be surprised how much you learn and how much you have in common. Um, Second thing I would say is act respectfully uh, despite disagreement. Um, Be respectful in your tone. Don't use a lot of adjectives. Make people feel seen and heard. And don't question their motives. For example, if I was in Congress, it would be proper for me to say, hey, Bob, I don't think you should vote for this bill because it's going to cut jobs in Florida. It would be improper to say, hey, Bob, you're doing that because you got $250,000 in in contributions from the AFL-CIO. Don't question a person's motive. Just act respectfully. And the third thing, and this is probably most important, is respond with a warm heart. We have no control over how someone treats us. If they're a jerk and cuts us off of traffic or says something that hurts our feelings, it's going to hurt your feelings. And and there's nothing we can do to make it not hurt them. What we have absolute control over is responding with a warm heart. No matter how they are treated, take a breath and respond with kindness. And you will find that it's probably 90% chance going to impact them in a favorable way, but there's a 100% chance it's going to impact you. So take a breath. Don't react instantly and say exactly what your emotions or feelings are. Act with warmth at, at, 
and and you're going to see a big benefit to you as well as them. And if we all do that, I think society gets better. But it starts with the one thing we can control, and that's our behavior, being kind and civil. Wow, what a inspiring way to really end, I think, and empower our listeners with some steps they can be taking, which are simple, small things, like you said, they can be doing in their own community, which really make a change and help drive some positive actions, which is really, really exciting. And it's really cool as we wrap up today that our conversation is taken about the time it would, I think, this isn't anything we've checked on record or anything to fact check yet, but how long would it take to eat a pint of ice cream? Maybe depends on what flavor it is. But I got to ask, Rick, um, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? How do you feel about the holiday flavors coming up? My number one flavor, if I could wave a magic wand, would be Key Lime Pie by the Hershey's uh, Company. I think it's spectacular. You don't see it everywhere. If I didn't see that somewhere, probably my go-to traditional ice cream would be strawberry. Trying to stick within the fruits to keep it uh, uh, healthy and everything. And I think I know what, what yours is, but maybe you should tell the listeners what yours is. Well, I think uh, Rick knows that peppermint, you know, is the way to go. But I'll tell you what, strawberry is also pretty good. I feel like uh, the doctor would say that's okay. I mean, you get a little fruit in there, right? I mean, you got to mix mix some sweets and and savory, you know? That's right. Absolutely. There's not, I haven't met one I I haven't liked though so far. (laughs) Exactly. Me too. Me too. I know. I know. My my thing is if you walk to the ice cream store, uh, then, then maybe you work for it, you know? That's right. Hey, I like it. Well, thank you so much, uh, Congressman. We really, really appreciate it. This was a really inspiring discussion. Such an exciting way to kick off this podcast uh, and really excited for the work that you're going to continue to do. I hope our listeners will continue to follow along uh, and see all of the great work you continue to do. Well, thank you. If anybody wants to know anything more about me, rickkeller.net has all the info. If you want to contact me or read or see any speeches, got all there and love to hear what they think about things. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Sean.